So here's the thing, black people can also be Jewish. And that is what we're talking about today with Gamal Palmer. He's black and as he tells it, he would be sitting in temple as a kid mid prayer and people would interrupt him to ask if he knew where he was. They would ask if he actually was Jewish, implying that he didn't belong there. So today we talk all about that, about how his different identities intersect and not. Just a reminder, this is the fourth and last episode in our series on Judaism and queerness. If you missed an episode, go back and start with our very first one with Denise Egger. She is a rabbi and one of the most famous lesbian rabbis in the world. All right, on to Gamal. From Luminary Media, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. There are a lot of stereotypes about Jewish people that all of us grow up hearing. And I think that one of them that we don't hear is that black people can also be Jewish. But that is just something that I think we don't necessarily think about or talk about when we talk about Jewish people. We really are talking about white Jewish people. It's a big conversation actually right now, nationally. Um, There are several people who are a part of the JOC or Jews of Colors community and conversation that are really moving the needle on this topic in terms of awareness and inclusivity and understanding that actually the Jewish population in America will inevitably increase by almost 20 or so percent to be Jews of color within the next 20 to 30 years. But ultimately, it's still a pretty pervasive thought that there are no Jews of color, and they're very surprised when when they find out that there are. And the stereotype is if someone's black and Jewish that they're an Ethiopian Jew, right? That's like the right. only narrative exactly. we have. Yeah, exactly. You're an Ethiopian Jew or it's just you're unique or you're like an anomaly or something. And I guess to be like blunt, what I'm wondering is like, what are the typical reactions that you hear when people find out that you're Jewish? The silence that I just shared with you uh, is one. Um, Also just, oh, well, tell me where you're from or what are you or how did that happen? Like, how did that happen is a big one, you know, like, oh, how did that happen? And I... Is that the assumption like you're, you converted? Yeah, it could be that I converted or they just don't know or they think that it couldn't have happened the same way that it happened, how they became Jewish. Uh, It actually, I mean, in some ways I am Jewish because of my mom. Um, but in other ways, I do have a unique story, if you will. But I think just to your, your point, there are all kinds of things. I mean, people have said, oh, well, you're not really black is another thing that people will say. Oh, they use it to invalidate your race? Yeah. That's weird. That can happen. And growing up, did you see people of color reflected in Judaism? Never. No. Really? No, not at all. So like going to temple, it was your family was the only like people of color? No, because that's where my story comes in. So, no, no, no. It's like, so just to answer your question, um, when I walk into a synagogue as a kid, I was constantly asked like, oh, are you Jewish? Even though I had a kippah on or like a yarmulke, which is the little hat looking thing that Jewish men wear often and sometimes women. So I could have that on and I could have on the cloth that you get from being bar bat mitzvah when you turn 13 and you become an adult and you have this whole ceremony. And I could be davening or praying, if you will, singing the songs in Hebrew. And somebody will actually stop me from praying to ask me if I'm Jewish. It's 
puzzling. Um, so that was kind of the experience that I had walking into synagogues. You know, it was, uh, it was really a lifetime of people doing like a double take, right? Doing like double takes all day long, you know? So I really constantly had this experience of like being watched while, or being observed or being noticed because I was a, a man of color in a Jewish space, even though I was Jewish. And was that something that was discussed in your family? No. So my family, my Jewish journey story is a little interesting one. Um, so my mom grew up in a Jewish family in, in New York and then northern New Jersey. And then she ended up getting with my dad, who's a civil rights activist, and uh, black and not Jewish. Um, and so not only was she now with a man who's not Jewish and who's black and a civil rights activist, but he was very much so like, staunch power to the people. I'm going to say what I want to say. I'm going to call you out on your racism or your whiteness or whatever. Um, and so it didn't really go down that great with the fam. Uh, and, uh, and so my mom, I brought up those other examples and including my dad, just to say that my mom really like stepped away from Judaism and stepped away from, uh, organized just Judaism at all. And so we actually, ended up going to Sunday school, my siblings and I, um, to church, to a Presbyterian church, Summit Church in West Mount Airy, which is where we grew up. Um, and at the same time, I also, there were a lot of synagogue. I grew up in a really multicultural neighborhood. So in a middle-class neighborhood with Jews and Black people and Asian people and Muslims and Christians and like this whole sort of melting pot, if you will, of a community, very um, special place. And I also had Jewish friends growing up. And so there were certain friends where I was at their homes for Shabbat dinners um, and other sort of rituals. And I, and the synagogue was literally a block away from my house. Um, and so I, I just had this idea that I wanted to be Jewish. Like I wanted to practice my Judaism. I was eight years old. So I said to my mom that I want to be Jewish. And I mean, she was like, no, you don't, <laughs> or, you know, whatever, like, you know, just thought it was my boisterous self. For about a year, I asked to do this. And eventually I just walked into the synagogue when I was nine years old and said, I want to speak to the rabbi. And I said, you know, my mom is Jewish, which makes me Jewish and I'm not practicing. What should I do? And he called my mom and then I started freaking out because I was like, oh my God, am I in trouble now? Like, wait a minute, what did you just do? Come on, what? Um, and he's like, you know, this is Rabbi Han from the Germantown Jewish Center. Your son is here and he says he wants to be Jewish. So I end up in Hebrew school two weeks later. Wow. Yeah, and nine. And here you are today. And here I am today. I mean, it's just interesting that you chose Judaism like as a kid. Yeah. And that is something that you still like partake in. Like not many things that I did at nine, I like still like back up. I was not always this way. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, I uh, I was very, very into my Judaism as a kid. And it was really challenging growing up in a house that uh, where I was the only one who was practicing and I was the youngest and I had siblings who were not that older than me and they liked to tease me and you know, because I'm the youngest, so they'll tease me about anything. And then when the Jewish piece came along, that was like real good, juicy fodder for them. So, um, but also I think they just didn't understand. But as a kid, that kind of tension, I mean, I really felt othered even at home, right? I'm just impressed that you were feeling othered. You were one of nine in the house. Like that's a lot of pressure coming from your siblings and that you kept with it though. 
Right. I begged my mom to go to an all Jewish day school called Akiba Hebrew Academy. And I was legit the only person of color in the entire school. I was used to that stage being one of, but not the only. And so, you know, looking back on it, um, I think that I was acting out like as like this otherness was having me act out. And there were also some pretty like a few very specific racist teachers there that culminated in me no longer attending that school. But uh, essentially after my bar, my bar mitzvah and maybe a couple of years later kind of petered off like m- most Jewish kids in America or many Jewish kids in America after you, you know, you go through the Hebrew school or Jewish day school and you have your bar mitzvah or your bat mitzvah or whatever sort of pivotal young, you know, teenage moment. Uh, and really it came back around like years and years later. So th- just to say that it really has not been a consistent thing in my life. I also feel like that's not a dissimilar feeling to how, at least like I experience like my queerness. Like sometimes I want to like say hi to people in the street and like scream, like I'm queer. And you're like, and like, look at my right. shirt, <laughs> queer power. Um, and other times I like forget about it. Right. And like now I work in queer media, but I used to not. And like, I feel like people go in and out of like their embodying their identities like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that about your queerness too? Yeah, although that one's pretty consistent, but because I just kind of always feel like that's a part of who I am. I came out when I was 14. So in some sense, and as I'm saying that, you know, in some sense, I, I feel like it's a part of who I am and I'm always aware of it. But in another sense, it's when I'm in a queer environment that I've sort of ultrally connected to it or maybe just more, it's more prevalent or, or more conscious. I mean, yeah. Well, well, tell me this. It sounds like your identity growing up of Judaism and of being black, that there were circles that didn't overlap. Right. Did you feel that way about your queerness as well? I f- absolutely think that my identity as a non-heterosexual male does not overlap with my Judaism. And it comes up against often with my black identity. And now I think that I'm finally at a stage in life where it is much more intersectional. It is much more fluid. And I'm able to voice my blackness in a Jewish space, which is something that took a really long time for me. And the queerness or the non-heterosexualness is something that I don't really speak to in life. I'm very much so an advocate. I've been a part of various like nonprofit initiatives. I was on the leadership council for Lambda Legal. But, you know, it's something that I think about. I've never really been vocal about my sexual identity. It's just kind of been what I have been. And why were you not like being as vocal about your queerness? It wasn't something I felt like I had to do, you know? I mean, I, and which is really bizarre because So I came out when I was in eighth grade and the hardest thing to do was to tell my mom. But once I told her, I really didn't care what anybody else thought. I didn't need anybody else's approval. Didn't get hers for many years later, but uh, I mean, very much so loving and approving now. And it's been a real journey, a fascinating one actually. But 
all that to say is that I just, you know, I, I never felt that pull to, and sometimes I wish I had actually, like sometimes I, and particularly ironically, like in this, this past year, for whatever reason, like I have been thinking a lot about, like, I wish that I had used my voice, not that it's too late, but use my voice more to advocate for it. And I think maybe it was, maybe it was my own internalized homophobia, right? Like I was said comfortable you know, with my sexual orientation or identity, but also like was playing it safe a little bit. So were you that guy that co-workers might have like been surprised to find out that you were gay? Yeah, like, was sometimes. It, was at yeah. that level. So sometimes. I, and I don't... But not to me because I never hit it. Yeah. I just didn't talk about it. And I had partners like in high school. I mean, I had my, my first love for four years. That's a long time, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's like a right or wrong there at all. But in the way that you can't like take off your blackness, like walking down the street or walking into this podcast studio, I've always felt that way about like my own queerness. Like mm-hmm. there was no way I could hide it. Like I've not had to actually come out to anybody in like the last like decade. Mm-hmm. It's just been so obvious. Right. And so it's just like so interesting hearing you say that. And I wonder like if maybe I work in queer media and I front it because I don't have another choice, to be honest. You front being queer and like I like such a queer lifestyle. Oh, you mean you 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 kind of uh, lead with it, lead let's with say, it, right? Yeah. Identity wise, but even leading with, I mean, look, even leading with queerness, which yeah, which is a great question because uh, because I'm now reflecting and I'm and I do think that a lot of it had to do with my own not wanting to lead with my queerness, and therefore not only did I not lead with it, but I actually didn't really explore it and all that I could do for the queer community and all that the queer community could do for me was something that I really hadn't fully explored because I think that I wanted to be a person that was queer but didn't like act queer even though you ask other people and they will tell you they were very clear about me when I walk in the room but I would say though that you know and I don't want to speak for you but as much as you know I may feel queer or I may feel whatever that means gay or like and I'm that I'm wearing my gayness or my queerness and expressing it as loudly and proudly as I can I do think there's a difference between that and like being of color right like as much as you may feel like a person may feel like they're black they might not be and that would be the reality and that would be what people see Right. So like this, I think it's a really interesting conversation, especially right now with where we're at such a time where we need to be like coalition building even more and supporting and understanding each other's pains and each other's meaning culturally specific communities, black community, gay community, right? That there is this other tension of like, of understanding in the queer community to understand that queer people of color have both the queer challenge and, and discrimination and also the of colorness. And the of colorness, they cannot turn off or on. Yeah, I think that's a great point because I think also for minority groups, adding one more label on top of one more label on top of one more label, it just it can get a lot and it can feel like a lot of like pressure. So I wonder if like a part of you was like, I'm already black and Jewish. <laughs> like I can't like front one more like circle to like take myself smaller. Right, yeah. Maybe that was the case, but um, this all happened so young. I came out when I was young. The Jewish piece was when I was young. And also I think the type of person that I am, I kind of would go with what I felt. I gotcha. 
You said you work for the Jewish Federation. Mm -hmm. Can we just define what that is for everybody listening? Sure, yeah. Because I actually don't even know exactly what you do. Or not you do, but the the, the Federation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's really hard because the Federation does a lot. So it's been around for over 100 years. I think it's 120 years. This particular Federation, we create programs and opportunities to engage people in Jewish life and to support them in Jewish life and in Israel. And so what that could look like is like programs for teenagers, like internship programs, or for kids, like book reading programs, or for Holocaust survivors, or for Jews in need who are maybe of hunger or have financial challenges, right? And then, of course, all the work that we do with politicians and people in the non-Jewish community, the African-American community, Latino community in Los Angeles. So with the rising amount of anti-Semitism in America and worldwide, one stat is that the number of violent attacks on Jewish people doubled last year. Has that changed the internal conversations in the organization about what you want to do? Not really, because I think maybe, maybe for some people, for for the work that I do, it's, you know, anti-Semitism has been around for a while. Uh, and um, Do you have two sources for that? Right, I know, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, you sure? So, I mean, what we do, we would be doing anyway, which is essentially engaging people to encourage them to be a part of Jewish life. I think that what we find on the other end is people not as maybe willing or, you know, they have challenges with how they relate to Israel and they equate that to their Judaism. And so maybe they don't want to participate because they feel like they can't support Israel or maybe because we're a non-political organization and we're a non-religious organization, there are people who are being pulled towards being very pro-Israel and very Zionist. So I think on the other end, we're finding how do we engage these people that are being confronted with these social tensions and challenges. I see. I ask that because I know that a lot of LGBTQ organizations feel like they're suddenly playing defense and they're trying to hold the line as opposed to gaining more rights for us. And I didn't know if that was like the feeling at the Federation as well. Tell me what you mean. Like they feel like we had made so much progress, specifically under the Obama administration, and that we want to keep making progress and we want to keep gaining more rights for queer and trans people in the States. And instead of that, we're seeing rights taken away. There is a massively important Supreme Court case that could jeopardize all LGBTQ workers. And instead of expanding our rights, we're having to play defense. We're trying to have to hold the line. And I know like women's organizations too, with like reproductive health are feeling that too. Right. I think there are probably many Jewish organizations that are feeling that because they are politically motivated in the sense that that's a part of their mission. Sorry, are you saying that the Jewish Federation doesn't see themselves as a political organization? They're not a political organization. So that shocks me because of how politicized our religion is currently today. Yes. I'm surprised that you're able to escape that. I didn't say we escape it, but but as an organization, we don't. I mean, in the past few years, we've taken one or two um, political stances. and, And, you know, I don't want to say that it didn't, that it went well or didn't go well, but they were rare cases. And, you know, ultimately we really focus on just building Jewish community. And and so even with our elected officials, we are, you know, we have to be very careful with how we engage with our elected officials and who we engage and who we engage to what extent. 
uh, and meaning, you know, are we over engaging one particular person or one particular perspective um, because we are essentially more of a inclusive or pluralistic organization? That's fascinating. You can't answer this. I wonder if you guys even have a choice whether or not you're seen as political or not, just in the way we are. I think that by anybody who takes an action or doesn't take an action, depending on the observer, can make a decision about that person who has or hasn't taken an action. Does that make sense? That is a beautifully PC way to phrase that. (laughs) Okay, well, tell me this. We were talking about Israel. And I bring that up because um, one, it's important, a religion, but also we're at a place politically where if you criticize Israel, you're labeled anti-Semitic. And I just wonder how you think about Israel in general, but also in terms of the conflict that monopolizes all conversations about it. You know, I have the opportunity to go to Israel at least every other year, if not more. And I think that Israel is a place to really be studied by people and looked at in multiple ways. And also how Israel has been leveraged from various sides over the decades to benefit or attempt to benefit, you know, its its surrounding and even distant neighbors and agendas, competing agendas, I guess, internationally. I would, I think that, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say my specific sort of belief systems about Israel um, right now, but what I would say is, is that it's a place that really is very special. And what was created there is pretty extraordinary. And it would be in everyone's best interest to actually look to see like, how does that happen? How does that get accomplished? And what could we learn from this? you know, sort of as we refer to America as an experiment, right? So like as Israel as an experiment. And I think that, you know, if people were to do that and take off whatever they've been taught to believe about the conversation, we could potentially have some headway, make some headway in that conflict. And I think that people would label what's happening in like Gaza and like with certain Palestinians in certain parts of the country as human rights abuses. And I think that like, unlike other countries, that they're able to write off this entire country in the way that we don't for any other. It's a like a nuanced, con- complex situation. And I find that like the only answers I hear are like easy. Well, that's what I, I mean, I, I know what I just said was half creative sounding, half ambiguous, half PC. But ultimately, you know, that's what I'm pointing to is the nuances there. There are a lot of nuances from all sides and there's almost no desire or appreciation to look at those nuances. And, but I also think that that's a a thing that's like happening, that's pervasive in modern sort of societies, right? Or at least in America. I mean, there's a lack of appreciation for nuance and for taking hard stances and not like even being interested in there being something called like a gray. Of course. I don't want to label anything that criticizes Jews or Israel as anti-Semitic. But I also, I, and I don't know the answer to this, I also have to wonder is there are some things that I think are horrible going on in Israel, let's say, in the Gaza Strip with like movement restrictions and this and, and like, you know, killing protesters. I don't think it's any worse than other countries. And I have to wonder, is it because of anti-Semitism that people are able to say like down with Israel and like we, that we can't report on, you know, we can't visit, we can't report to do anything. Whereas we don't say that for any other country. I have seen that too. 
And I think that that is really interesting. And I think that, you know, there are biases on all sides that prevent people from making those kind of comparisons or looking at the nuances. And um, unfortunately, due to all sorts of decisions that are being made, both within Israel, within Palestine, internationally, that it's only actually making that worse and more difficult for people to look at the nuance and increasing the level of biases that people are bringing to the conversation. I appreciate letting me talk about that. Let's segue something else. You mentioned earlier that your father was an activist. What did he do? I believe his activism started in West Philadelphia. He became the head of a gang called Black Bottom. And um, essentially really believed in education and in small businesses and Black-owned businesses and protecting the community, not necessarily with guns and violence, but through education and commerce and economy. And so he fought really hard in that community to create that kind of shift within the gang culture. I mean, I know he made some headway, but I think Philadelphia got worse before it got better in terms of gangs um, once he left. But then he started to he went to law school, he got into, you know, teaching workshops and seminars around mobilizing people and getting out votes. And, you know, he was a part of Jesse Jackson's campaign, like leading Jesse Jackson's campaign in Pennsylvania, both times that he ran for office. He also led one of the largest high school walkouts in the country and has just been, he's one of those quiet but not so quiet local activists that has been able to do quite large range of work. He had a charter school for about 25 years, the Walter D. Palmer Charter School, that closed because of all sorts of things. But I think one of the things that was going on was that he was actually in some ways leveraging the school to fight for more rights in terms of education and charter schools in general and vouchers, et cetera. So He's still working. He's still a professor at University of Pennsylvania. So how did having a figure like that growing up so close to you, like influence you growing up? It greatly influenced me. I mean, my mom also was an activist. Uh, I don't, I still never know if she like will let me say that she's an activist, but she is. She was a part of starting one of the first needle exchanges in the country. That's where um, heroin addicts bring dirty needles in exchange for clean ones. So like when I was 12, 13, rather than hanging out at the soccer field or whatever, I was handing out clean needles to sex workers and um, their johns and also just like functioning people, right? Like coming in business suits. So, I mean, my mom now and for the past like 15, 20 years has um, been a part of running the um, studies with uh, for men who have sex with men around HIV AIDS work in Philadelphia. So she's like in all the gay clubs and bars and, you know, festivals and our team, you know, like dispensing our team and getting people to be a part of these studies. And she, I mean, she would, well, when she was working needle exchange, she was going to shoot up galleries. So like, I grew up with these parents who were super extreme activists, but like, you know, business people. And that's how they could afford to raise nine kids. Yeah, except they couldn't. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So my my dad had nine kids. He married his high school sweetheart, 
and had four kids with her. And then um, there was one woman that he was with who um, they decided to give the kid up for adoption. And then he had four kids with my mom. So in total, my dad had four kids, but I didn't grow up in the house with nine kids. But, oh, that's a different experience. Yes, but we didn't really know the other side of the family too well. I think that we were kind of the, like the, the white side of the family, like the white kids. Is your mom white? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, my mom's white. Yeah. And so, and, um, and so that's kind of interesting. Like my dad, I mean, I always try to get him to talk about it and hopefully I will get more details on how all this was going down and what he was thinking. But I mean, we lived very separate lives for a long time. Well, my siblings did. Because I think by the time I came around, like we were integrated and we knew each other. And I mean, I have very fond memories of like, of my older, my four oldest siblings, you know, when I was a kid, but it was a really fractured growing up. And then, and just to answer your other question about, you know, what was it like having my dad be who he was and to influence me in this way? And I, I brought my mom in on the combo too, but my parents separated when I was two. So my mom is the one who really raised us. And my dad was very much so around or I should say my dad was very much so present in our lives, um, but he was not always around. So it was a really hard thing to like have this influential and public father who wasn't really at home, right? And then when he was home, it was like he was clearly there. Oh, because he's beloved by the community, it sounds like. Yeah. But he's also like you don't get to see that guy that often. Right. Because we they didn't live together. I mean, and my mom, like my, my mom, we lived with my mom the full time, except for summers where we would spend with my dad. Imagine your father being like, "Wait, my son's gay and Jewish. Like, how'd that happen?" Yeah, kind of did go down like that because I didn't talk to him for like a good ten years. So, and it was in between that time. Well, he knew that I was Jewish, but by the time I came out, we weren't really talking too much. So I didn't talk to him. In, really until I was 19 or 20. Wow. You know, your identity as a Jewish person of color, I find it so difficult to actually discuss race with Judaism Mm -hmm. because so many people view Judaism as a race itself. But combined with the fact that the current stats say about 12 to 15% of Jews are people of color. But America counts Middle Eastern people as white. And so like, I don't actually know what that stat could possibly be. Mm-hmm. So there's a woman, Alana Kaufman. Yes. You've checked her out. Yeah. Do you know her? She really spearheaded this new research that said yes. we've been drastically undercounting the number of people yes. of color who are Jews. Yes. Yeah. So Alana's work is really looking at that. And we don't have the numbers, but what she did do, we produced the West Coast sharing of that data two months ago. Ultimately, what Alana did was she used the American Webster Dictionary's definition of race and how we define race and also the government's definition of race and how they sort of use that with everything. And she matched that against or analyzed that against all of the studies that have been done, the demographic studies that have been done on Jews in America in the past, like major demographic studies in the past 20 years. 
So she was able to see that we're not even asking like the right questions. And to your point with this, you know, like Middle Eastern, but yet you're considered white and like, what is a Jew of color? And so if you go based on solely like the definition of race in America, which is really based on black and white Jews, as you said, of color, which would mean black Jews are currently 15 to 20% and will be 40% soon. So we are counting Middle Eastern people as white in that study. In that study. I mean, I think what's great about Alana's study is that it's really focusing on who's also Jewish. And it, it goes back to your initial question, which is like, what is that experience like? How, you know, how do people even think about Jews in terms of what they might look like. And what her study is really pointing to is that Jews themselves don't see non-whites as Jewish. And that's like a real issue and also not true. Before I let you go, I have one more question. Yes. I want to end on a positive note. Yeah. I just want to know, what do you like the most about Judaism? That when I was going to Sunday school back when I was eight years old and before I made that decision to walk into the synagogue that day, when you're taught things about the Bible or history or seems to be like there's one kind of thought there. There's one perspective to follow. Doesn't mean it's a bad perspective or a good perspective, but there's kind of one route. And Judaism is inherently designed from the actual Torah or the Bible itself to understand that there are multiple perspectives on this one topic. And this one topic being every topic. And I think the way in which that philosophy and um, approach to life, the way in which that plays out in Judaism, um, and now that I work in the organized Jewish world, particularly in Jewish organizations, can be extremely maddening and feel crazy sometimes to actually be eliciting and allowing for all of these different perspectives to not only be said, but actually to like impact the direction of of a decision. Um, while all that can be very infuriating, it's also beautiful. And it's really what we say we want in life. Like we say we want to be inclusive and we say we want to broaden our perspectives and our horizons. And so for there to be such a um, unique and substantive kind of value around inclusivity of thought, it's pretty inspiring to me. That's an amazing answer. Thanks for this. Thank you. Of course. That was Gamal Palmer. Special thank you to Jordan Daniels who recommended him. If you want to recommend someone amazing like Gamal, come find me on Twitter. That is the best way to connect and recommend other guests. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. We are brought to you by Luminary Media, Neon Hum Media, and The Advocate. The Advocate magazine is the world's leading LGBTQ news source. Come check out our website at advocate.com. LGBTQ&A is produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, John Asante, Tanner Robbins, Betty Marquez-Rosales, Natalie Bader, Karin Navadia, and myself, with sound engineering by Scott Somerville and Martin Bush. We'll see you next week.